0: Hello, I'm Simon Long, finance and economics editor, and this is Money Talks. Later in the
3: programme, clean energies, dirty secret. These subsidies now are not just supporting renewable energy, they're also being used to support fossil fuel energy as well.
0: Professor Diane Elson, a pioneer of gender budgeting, explains her work.
2: They thought the governments were gender neutral, but in fact the budgets were gender blind. And
0: Brazil moves at last to tackle its pensions crisis.
4: The public system for private sector workers notched up a deficit of about $50 billion.
0: But to start, we tend to look on renewable energy as almost unambiguously a good thing. We may grumble at the way wind turbines disfigure the landscape and endanger birds, or regret that we don't live somewhere sunny enough to get all our electricity from solar panels. But we welcome the reduction in global carbon emissions and that renewables are getting cheaper. But our cover story in this week's Economist suggests that the rise of renewables is putting the global electricity market into something of a crisis. Its author, Henry Tricks, our energy and commodities editor, joins me now. Let's start with cost, Henry. It is getting cheaper, but who's benefiting?
3: It certainly is getting cheaper. In the course of the last year or so, we've seen some um, some spectacular results from auctions in which you know, wind power in the North Sea or solar power in Latin America is actually cheaper than the fossil fuel equivalent. So in other words, it's cheaper for a government, for example, to install a solar power facility than it is to establish a gas-fired power plant. That's been one of the uh, exciting developments, if you like, in the renewable energy industry over the last year. The trouble is, is that all this power, especially in the developed world, especially in the rich world, is the result of subsidies. So we set out, the rich world about 10 or 15 years ago, set out to promote renewable energy, to use subsidies to bring down costs because they wanted to decarbonize the electricity system. And that was a thoroughly good thing to have done. But those subsidies have had various effects. They've they've pushed up electricity bills in certain countries like Germany, which has been on the forefront of this. And so that causes some, some resentment on the part of bill payers. But more to the point, a little bit of renewables carries a very heavy punch. In fact, we sort of say that clean energy has its own dirty secrets. And that is basically that those investments this this rollout of renewable energy has a big impact on global power markets and it sort of disincentivizes investments not just in you know fossil fuel plants and whatever but in renewables itself so it's not very self-sustaining without subsidies
0: and i suppose you still need those old traditional forms of sources of power fossil fuels and so on because The wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, least of all here in London.
3: Yes, that's that's exactly right, which is why one of the strange paradoxes of this sort of clean energy transition is that these subsidies now are not just supporting renewable energy, they're also being used to support fossil fuel energy as well. The fossil fuel plants can't really make it on their own because renewable energy is generating power all the time that the wind is blowing, for example. But on those moments when the wind dies down, they need a coal-fired power station or a gas combined cycle gas turbine uh, to fire up very quickly. And in order to make it economically feasible for them to do that, the government has to keep on supporting them.
0: As you say, renewables at the moment are still a relatively small proportion of global electricity generation, but they're going to get bigger and bigger. What does this mean for the electricity market as a whole? It's not structured for that, is it?
3: Interestingly enough, in the last year or so, there's a sense that some of these problems that I'm talking about have begun to deter investment in in renewable energy. So last year there was a record decline in investment in in renewables, but that's not something that we want to that that we want to see. It, it, may, it may be economically rational, but ultimately we want to see greater penetration of renewables in the grid because that's the way to decarbonize them. And you know most forecasters expect that in order to hit our goals of reducing global warming, we'll probably need to have half of our electricity system powered by renewables in the next 25 or 30 years. So so we need a lot of them. What we really need to do is we we need to start thinking about the way that we talk about electricity, the way that we price electricity and the way that we regulate electricity to come up with new mechanisms that are more flexible, that cope with this intermittency, for example, by reducing demand by encouraging people to switch off their air conditioners for example when they don't need them or we can use more storage more batteries if we have more electric vehicles hopefully they can provide some sort of place to store electricity so there are there are lots of ideas out there and there are businesses that are emerging to try and cope with this problem in the electricity system but it's a long-term transition and uh, it's a work in progress.
0: My thanks to The Economist's Energy and Commodities editor, Henry Tricks. So what do you think? Are renewables at the heart of an insurrection in the global power markets that's spreading across the developed and developing world? Let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at Next, we meet Professor Diane Elson, an expert on gender budgeting and chair of the UK Women's Budget Group, a think tank. She describes herself as a feminist economist and has for years been taking governments, the IMF and the World Bank to task about the gender biases implicit in their economic policies. Now her work is making it into the mainstream. My colleague, Elizabeth Winkler, interviewed Professor Elson this morning and joins me in the studio now. Elizabeth, before we hear your interview, help us out. What exactly is gender budgeting?
1: Gender budgeting is a way of doing budgeting that incorporates gender equality goals into the budget process. So that can mean um, doing a gender impact assessment of the budget to see how it impacts men and women, boys and girls differently, or setting gender equality goals and then directing funding to meet them.
0: And Professor Elson, I understand, is known as the, the mother of gender budgeting.
1: I first started researching gender budgeting by looking at a series of IMF papers, which were just published last year, surveying gender budgeting efforts around the world. And the economist I spoke with said, you know, you really need to talk to Diane Elson because she's been doing this work for 20 years. I think she's just an amazing scholar.
0: Thank you very much. And now let's listen to what Professor Elson has to say. As I understand it, your first question to her was, how did she get started in working on gender budgeting?
2: I was working on the impact of IMF and World Bank structural adjustment policies on women in the 1980s, and I began to see how adversely women were affected by these policies, more so than men. Okay, how are these governments cutting their budgets? Why are they doing it in ways that disproportionately impact on women? So previously, have government budgets been sort of gender neutral? They've not been gender neutral but gender has not been visible to governments in the way that they made their budgets. I described this um, when I was working on this in the 1990s as the budget. they thought the governments were gender neutral, but in fact the budgets were gender blind. And if they looked at the budgets from, through a gender lens, they would see that the measures very often had different impacts on women and men, boys and girls.
1: So does gender budgeting help ministries that wouldn't normally think about um, women versus men, boys versus girls, take gender into consideration?
2: It does. Uh, Let me give the example of agriculture, agricultural ministries. It's very important in many countries, especially low-income countries, where a large proportion of the population get their livelihoods from agriculture. Large numbers of women, in fact, in some countries, more women than men are farmers, But ministers of agriculture have tended to spend money on support for farmers without taking into account gender differences. I'll give you two examples. One is in terms of the educational outreach, the technical uh, education services that are provided to farmers, where very often uh, we found that in Africa, They were targeting only male farmers. And so the way they were spending their money on extension services was not as effective as it could be. So they could change that. And they did start to change it once they realized that. An example I found from Australia, which is the pioneer country for gender budgeting, was analysis of the uh, money that the government spent on research related to agriculture. And they found a lot more research was spent in relation to the large animals, cows, sheep, <laughs> and not very much in relation to the small animals such as chickens. But when you look at who does what kind of farming in Australia, it's the women farmers who are responsible for the smaller animals and the male farmers who were responsible for the bigger animals. So again, female farmers were not getting the equivalent research support uh, that male farmers were getting. And once they realized this, they could address it and say, was there something we need to change here?
1: So gender budgeting is sort of good budgeting, is that right? Gender
2: budgeting is definitely good budgeting, yes. It makes governments think much more clearly about exactly how are they raising and spending money, who is benefiting and who is not benefiting.
1: Christine Lagarde, the managing director of the IMF, has recently recommended that the fund integrate gender budgeting and
2: its advice to all member countries. Is this fairly new? This is new. The fact that the International Monetary Fund has done research on gender budgeting and now that Christine Lagarde is giving this advice is new, and I, I welcome this. In the 1990s, with the research I was doing then, I was criticizing the International Monetary Fund for not taking account of gender, not doing a gender analysis in the way that it operated, the way that it designed its lending programs. So. I'm very pleased to know that uh, there's been progress and the IMF is taking this up. I'm just going to be monitoring exactly what they're doing and communicating with the people I know there to see, are you moving this forward in terms of moving it from the research to the monitoring and from the monitoring to the actual design of the financial packages and the conditions attached to them that are the heart, really, of the IMS relationship to member countries.
1: But the idea for gender budgeting has been around since the 1980s, right, when Australia first
2: implemented it. Why has it taken so long for it to reach the mainstream? Several reasons, I think. There's an inherent conservatism about budgeting systems. Governments like to carry on doing what they've already done – so, any kind of reform of the budget process is often quite a a struggle to get implemented. Officials say we already have so much work to do why we don't want to do anything differently we don't want to do anything additional it will It will take a lot more time. So there, there is a general problem there. And some of the places where it's been easiest to get more effective gender budgeting is where a government was already in the process of reforming its budget process. A lot depends on the political commitment and political will. A lot of governments have been willing to do a little bit of work on gender budgeting, but it's harder to get the follow-through to the full implementation. Thank you very much, Professor Elson. My pleasure.
0: And finally, we turn to Brazil, where the government is at last taking steps to tackle one of its biggest financial problems, its pensions crisis. The country of the future, we once noted, spends far too much on its past. It has a young population but splurges on pensions like a profligate, ageing Southern European country. Already it spends almost as much on pensions as a share of GDP as does Greece, though it has far fewer old people. I'm joined from Sao Paulo by our Bureau Chief there, Jan Piotrowski. Jan, could you give us a sense of just how generous pensions are in Brazil?
4: They retire on average in their mid-50s, which seems absolutely shocking given that their life expectancy has risen sharply over the past few decades when the constitution afforded them um, the, the ability to retire at 60 for women and 65 for men or alternatively, after having contributed to this uh, pension system for 30 or 35 years for women and, and, and men, respectively. And many Brazilians do indeed take advantage of, of those constitutionally av- afforded rights. So
0: they must be quite generous as well as being awarded early.
4: They can be generous. Uh, one of them, the pensions in themselves, a lot of them are actually uh, limited by, by the level of the contributions. A lot of Brazilian pensioners get a, a minimum wage. However, many of them actually accumulate several benefits. Unlike in many countries, for instance, a Brazilian can draw both a pension and a survivor pension if, if the person has been widowed. So basically, the accumulation of these benefits means that pensioners are relatively well off compared to to many working Brazilians. And how
0: big a problem is this for the government's budget? How big a a financial hole is there in the pension pot?
4: Last year, the system for private sector, the public system for private sector workers notched up a deficit of a whopping 150 billion reais. So sort of on to the tune of of about 50 billion dollars. The... Public sector pensions, if you take into consideration both the federal government and state and municipal governments, added another 150 billion. So we're talking of about 300 billion reais just last year. And one of the reasons for that was uh, basically the the troubling demographics of Brazil with, with precipitously falling birth rates they're down from 5 per woman in 1970 to just 1.7 so below the replacement rate today and the sharply rising numbers of of the elderly because of of rising life expectancy so so you have the you have the demographic inexorable demography working on on one hand and brazil's record recession into its third year at the moment which is basically limiting the contributions the contributions are paid by salaried workers and with rising unemployment and therefore fewer salaried workers the the revenues from contributions have plummeted so the the current situation looks looks drastic and and it has spurred the government um, into action and what is it planning to do exactly it has proposed amending the constitution first of all to take the to, to, re, to set a minimum age for pensions uh, the current proposal suggests 65 for men and women and actually to, to take the the pension age out of the constitution to make uh, make the, raising it Easier in future as Brazilians live longer, which is which is fortunately inevitable for Brazilians, uh, less so for the pension system. And uh, so that's one of the one of the things that the government would like uh, to see happen. Another is to make sure that Brazilians uh, are no longer able to accumulate several benefits. Uh, so, for instance, a pension and their survivor pension, they would have to choose whichever one is more generous and whichever one is more advantageous for them.
0: Jem Piotrowski, Sao Paulo bureau chief. Thank you very much for. Talking- Joining us. Thank you. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen.